Thanks, y'all, for leading us and allowing us to sing with you. It sounds good from up front. It's the first time I've been up there. So uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, Glad everybody's here. My name is Mark Valentine, and uh, for the last 19 years, I've been the director here at Appalachian State with a, a campus ministry named Crew. And then the last three years, I've been one of the elders here at Alliance, and I've been asked to speak this morning since our senior pastor, Scott Andrews, is out of town. Uh, if you're visiting here, and I've already met some folks that are, um, you've got me. So uh, I'd encourage you to come back next week uh, when you get a chance to hear from Scott. My wife, Beck, and I, uh, we've been attending Alliance for about the last 13 years, and we regularly comment to each other and uh, other people that coming to Alliance was one of the top decisions we've made as a married couple. Uh, we love it here, and I've been blessed to sit under Scott's teaching I do not take this opportunity lightly. Uh, I'm really humbled to be here, and I'm trusting that God's going to do something significant this morning. So let me pray, and I'd ask that you pray with me. Father, I, I even, I just confess, I look out and I see people that um, I want to impress. I want them to think that I'm smart and funny. I'm a good speaker, a good communicator. God, I confess that right now. Take that away from me and replace it with confidence, not in myself, but from you. God, I pray that your word would be spoken and only your word would be heard and that this would be significant in the lives of the people here, the people that you dearly love. Go before us. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if some of you are like me. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Uh, But I'm not a huge movie guy. Uh, I certainly have my favorites. I could list some of them. Lonesome Dove, The Green Mile, Tommy Boy. I had two older sisters that made me watch Seven Brides for Seven Brothers all the time, so that's one of my classics now. Um, I could do that. I could talk about movies, but I'm not a huge movie fan. But even if you aren't necessarily a, a big film critic or connoisseur, you probably realize that film producers have been taking our money for years using the storyline of love showing up. You've probably seen or maybe remember some of those old black and white films where uh, the damsel is, is tied to the sawmill and she's going through and she's about to be cut in half or maybe she's, she's tied across the railroad tracks and the train's coming and death is imminent until just seconds before the train hits her, the hero comes swooping in and saves the day. Or maybe it's a slightly newer movie, uh, like The Princess Bride, which I hope all of y'all have seen. But the part when Buttercup is being forced to marry the evil Prince Humperdinck, and they're at the altar, and you can hear the commotion outside, and they're trying to rush through the wedding, the service, and and Buttercup looks at Wesley, and she says, here comes my Wesley now. There's just something about when love shows up. Grandkids show up for their grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary celebration, or a special friend makes the extraordinary effort to make a wedding or a birthday. There's power in someone showing up at graduations or at the hospital or a funeral. I'm sometimes fascinated by stories of people who have survived an avalanche or a mining disaster and hearing their firsthand accounts of what it was like for them to be waiting to be rescued. I don't know if you all remember, I think it was 2010, In Chile, there was 33 miners that were trapped about a half a mile underground. 
They were living in about a 500 square foot area. It was hot and humid. And can you imagine sitting in the dark, waiting, hoping to hear sounds of someone coming to rescue you or light coming towards you? And what range of emotions and how powerful those emotions were when finally after 69 days, finally someone shows up. I don't think about that often because I'll start getting wigged out in my brain, but 69 days of waiting for someone to show up. There's great thrill when people show up and there's great pain when they don't. Some of this might trigger memories or thoughts of perhaps maybe aren't so good. Maybe you have a picture of someone not showing up. Maybe it was a dad who was not there when you needed them. Or maybe you had a party that you've been planning for weeks and people didn't bother to come. Perhaps you've been stood up for a date and you recognize and you realize that sinking feeling you get when you you figure out they're not coming. In each of our hearts, I think we wonder or we doubt or we're afraid that God won't show up. And we might have a whole litany of reasons why we believe that. Maybe you think you caused the problem in the first place. Why, why would he show up and help me when it's my fault I'm in this dilemma in the first place? Or maybe he just has too much going on and I'm insignificant or not important enough to him. I know God will help the good Christians at Alliance. I know he'll help the ones who have better quiet times or share their faith more, but he's too busy just to show up for me. I think whatever it is we wonder at times, if God will show up. When I was in ninth grade, long before cell phones existed, my parents miscommunicated uh, and I was left after high school soccer practice. I wasn't old enough to drive yet and my mom thought my dad was getting me and my dad thought my mom was getting me and the end result, nobody got me. And uh, I remember initially, it's in the fall, lots of the different teams and people are kind of waiting to be picked up or getting rides from their brothers or carpooling home and everybody's kind of around and it's okay initially. But it gets to a point where they've all left and it's just me and it's getting cold and I'm frustrated and I feel lonely and I'm mad because I've been forgotten and I'm wondering if anyone cares or even notices where I am. And I think in my mind, it's like, gosh, it's, it's a family of six. Like how hard is it to miss just one of us? And especially me. Like they can't be missing me, but they were, they did. This morning, we're going to look at a couple different passages in the Bible where God assures us that it's not going to happen with him. One of the great things that I'd encourage you as you read your Bible is to view the Bible as one continuous, divinely inspired, authoritative story. And within that continuous, divinely inspired, authoritative story, there are these redemptive threads that you can see and you can start pulling on. When we do that, when we grab those threads this morning, when we pull on these threads with these verses that we're going to look at, you're going to see how amazing it is that the God of the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, wants to show up in your life. And he does that because that's what love does. Love shows up. So I hope you all are ready. We're going to fly through this. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to end in Revelation. This would literally take Pastor Scott 100 years to do but I'm going to try and do it in about 20 minutes. So look with me at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's interesting that God creates us and puts his image in us. We're going to come back to that. Look at Gen- uh, yeah, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I think this is really important. Let's not overlook this. You might meet someone on campus or at work, and they might say that they're a pantheist or a deist. Pantheism, pantheism is the view that uh, the world is either identical to God or an expression of God's nature. It comes from pan, meaning all, and theism, which mean, means belief in God. So according to pantheism, God is everything and everything is God. These verses in chapter 1 transcend that. Because God put his image in us, not everything. Not the animals or the trees or the moon, but us. And those things might have really good qualities because he created them, but his image is placed in us. Deism says that God doesn't care. There might be a higher power out there, but they certainly don't interfere or intervene in the, in the affairs of men. But Genesis chapter 3 says, no, he's walking with his people in the cool of the evening. He's not some disinterested tyrant, but he's actually interacting with his people. First chapter of Genesis, the first chapter of the Bible, we are his people made in his image. And chapter 3, he's walking with his people. My parents often did this when I was growing up, and it's, it's an amazing picture for me. Uh, often, particularly in the summertime, when it got darker a little bit later, my dad would ask my mom to go on a walk after dinner. And my four siblings would scramble to clear the table and we'd argue over the dishes. And we knew that if we got it cleaned up and it wasn't too late, we could go outside and play with the neighborhood kids. And so we would be playing whatever games. We'd play ghosts in the graveyard or shooting baskets. And I remember often seeing my parents walking hand in hand in the cool of the evening, coming back to our house just talking or catching up, being with each other. And that's the picture that God gives us here of him in the garden. God would walk with his people. So that's Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 3. Skip ahead about 700 to 1,000 years, and we're going to be in 2 Samuel 7. The context uh, is given in kind of verses 1 through 3. David is the king of Israel. Things are going really well. Life is good. He's, he's consolidated the, the kingdom. There's no longer any civil war. He's, he's king. Most of his enemies have been destroyed. And he actually has time to sit back and kind of create a to-do list. And one of the things he puts on his to-do list, he says, I, I want to build a temple. I want to build a, a nice place for God. I'm going to get him out of that tent where he's been the last couple centuries. I'm going to build a new home, a place where he would be pleased to live. That's one through three. And then verses four through seven, we'll read here. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built a house of cedar? 
God says to David through Nathan, his prophet, hey, I've been moving with my people for years. Where where do I go as God? Where, Where do you think I go? I go where my people go and I've loved it. I haven't complained. I haven't gotten mad. I'm with my people and that's where I wanna be. I just wanna be with my people. Sometimes uh, my children, uh, especially when they were younger, but they still do it now at times, sometimes I'll just need to go run a quick errand. Like it doesn't matter how mundane or how disinteresting it could be. It could be taking trash to the dump or it could be going to get gas for my lawnmower that's run out. And they'll be like, hey, I, we wanna, I wanna go with you. And I usually kind of think, gosh, I'm just, I'm just running this quick errand. It's not that big of a deal. But God here is saying, I just want to be with my people. David, I don't need a cedar house. Where my people go, I go. And it's been awesome. It's been great. I'm not complaining. Don't mess with it. I'm fine because I'm with my people. If you jump forward another 700 years, we're going to be in John 1. And I think this verse should almost literally blow our minds. It doesn't, unfortunately for me, when I read it because I've become so accustomed to it. But I think this verse should blow our minds. John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about this. God doesn't just show up, which in in itself is mind-boggling. But he goes beyond that like he so typically does. The word Jesus dwelt among us. He he came and dwelt. Think about the difference between showing up and dwelling. I think there's some rich connotations to dwell, and it makes this really important. Dwell here is the same Greek word used in the Old Testament for tabernacle. The place where God met personally with his people. That's what dwell means. I show up for a dental appointment, but I dwell with my wife and kids at our house. You might show up for class, some of you do, some of you don't, but you dwell over a meal talking about life with your best friend. You show up for work, but you dwell in a hammock with your grandkids when they come to visit. It's this idea of being fully known and understood by someone. God doesn't just show up but he himself dwells with us. And I think that should make us pause. I think that should blow our minds. God, you didn't just show up. You became a man and tangibly dwelt among us so that we could experience your love and presence in our lives. My two best friends uh, all through middle school, high school, and even into college uh, were Jeremy and Tom. And it's uh, Wednesday, September 12th, 2001. It's the day after 9-11. And our phone rings, and I answer it, and it's Jeremy's been gotten married. It's his wife. And she's crying. It's one of those phone calls where you know that something's not right. And uh, Jeremy's a physical therapist, and so I start going through. I was like, what, how would Jeremy, what would Jeremy be doing in New York or somehow be affected by 9-11? Then I start thinking of all the people that we knew in banking from high school and college or finances that might have been up there. And I start thinking through all this, and... Uh, his wife 
actually kind of just through tears says, hey, I got to tell you, Tom's sister was, uh, who was two years younger than us and traveled in the same circle, she was on uh, United Flight 93 that went down in Pennsylvania. So I'm just kind of in disbelief, like how, how random is this? Like how, how is this is crazy. So we finished talking, we hang up, and I remember turning to Becca and saying, I just need to go see Tom. So we don't have kids, it's a little bit easier. We pack up quickly, we leave that afternoon. Tom doesn't know that I'm coming, and we drive to Baltimore. And I'll never forget this, it's, it's totally surreal in my mind. It was surreal at the moment. But I'm walking up to his parents' house. He's there, He's, it's a house that I've visited a thousand times. I've walked up the sidewalk to his house a thousand times. And there's a big bay window that they have that looks into their living room and you can look from that under the sidewalk. And as I'm walking up the sidewalk, Tom's in the living room and he looks out and he sees me and our eyes make contact and he just kind of collapses. Through the window, I see him just kind of collapse into sobs. Because Tom realized that I showed up and that I had come to dwell with him and to walk this journey with him during this season. And the great, great, great thing about John chapter one is that we can be assured that God will show up and his presence will be known because he does so in his son who dwelt among us. That's an incredible passage. One more snapshot we wanna look at. And this takes us all to Revelation. It's the second to the last chapter of the Bible. It is almost done. The book is almost finished. It's this incredible picture. What, what do you think God would say at this point? Well, out of all the things that God could say, hallelujah, I've won. It is over. I've defeated the enemy. It's finished. Think about all the things we say when we've won a great victory. Think about all the things he could have said. Hey, check out this new city that's descending right now behind you, in front of you. I've made it and it's amazing. Everything has been made right and restored. What do you think God says at this moment? Revelation 21, one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And this is the verse. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This climactic moment, everything is being right. Everything is being made right. Everything is being restored. God has, has won this incredible victory once and for all. And the first thing that he says is, this is going to be awesome because I'm going to be with my people in the way that I was intended to be with my people. Out of all the things that he says, that he could say, that's what he says. This is awesome. I get to finally be with my people. And I think sometimes we read that and I'm like, well, why am I surprised? Genesis 1, he said it. 
2 Samuel 7, he says it. John 1, he says it. We have a God that shows up. But don't think God shows up just like some genie in a magic lamp, kind of there to do our bidding and to make our life more convenient. Sometimes my kids will call me and it'll sound like there's a, an urgent matter. Something's happened upstairs and I'll go running upstairs and I'll be all out of breath and I'll say, hey, what do you need? And they'll be like, hey, do you know where my brown sock is? Like that, that's not what, that's not how God responds in our life. That's not how we cry out to God. He shows up when brokenhearted, weary people like you and I cry out. And he shows up in lots of different ways, but I'm gonna talk about just a few real quick. One way that God shows up is that he pursues us. There's lots of verses that talk about this. We've already mentioned the Genesis 3 passage, but Luke 19.10, Matthew, Matthew 18.12, Ezekiel 34.16, they all speak about God and his pursuit of us. Show of hands here, how many of y'all drove by someone's house in high school or went out of your way to place yourself in someone's path so that they would see you? You pursued them in some kind of way so that they would see you. When you like someone, you wanna be around them. You wanna be near them. And this might surprise some of you, but you are loved and liked by God and he does the same thing. He will move heaven and earth and use people and circumstances and whatever else he chooses to have your paths cross. He pursues us. Some here might have spurned that pursuit for years. You might have dismissed it. You might have ignored it. You might have tried to shut it down. But I believe you're here this morning in this church in Boone, North Carolina for a host, a whole multitude of reasons. But one of them is that God is wooing your heart and God is pursuing your heart. He might be pursuing you to start a new relationship with him for the very first time. He might be pursuing you because your heart over time has become cold and callous towards things of God. Or he might be pursuing you to take another step of faith in a certain area of your life. Our nature, I would assume your nature at times is to resist God's pursuit in your life. I would encourage you not to do that. The second way that he shows up is he strengthens us. Isaiah 40, 29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. God shows up because we are so weak. Some of you this morning are having a hard time believing this, but this is, this is gonna be new to y'all. Some of us, uh, you might not realize, but we used to get our news and information in the form of multiple pieces of thin paper that were rolled up and held in place by a rubber band. And they were usually stacked in a really big bag. And then usually somebody would, either on their bike or in a car, kind of hurl them in the general direction of your house. And that's how you got your news. And it was called a newspaper. It existed before the dawn of the internet. And when I was growing up, I was in third grade. My brother's three years older. He had a paper route. He was a paper boy. And one week he goes, it's in the summertime, he goes to uh, summer camp and somebody has to deliver the papers for him. So we work out a deal that I'll deliver it for that week. So the papers come to our house. They're in a big bundle. You break open the bundle. You separate them. You wrap them. You roll them. You put the rubber band in them and you stick them in a big bag and you get ready to deliver them to the houses that have gotten the newspaper. And I go to do that and I go to pick up the bag 
and I can't lift it up. It's too heavy. So uh, I try and get onto my bike and try and lift it up, and that doesn't work. And then I, I lift it up onto a table, and I pull in the garage, and I pull my bike over close to it, and I put the strap over my arm, and I slide it off the table, and I start to pedal, and I immediately fall over because it's just too heavy for me. And I remember my dad coming into the garage, and he's saying, hey, let's do this together. I'll drive you this one week before I go to work. You've got to throw them out of the blue Pontiac station wagon that we have. You still have to throw them up to the house, but I'll drive you. I wasn't strong enough for the work at hand, and you all aren't either. But God is strong enough, and he will strengthen you. The third way that he shows up is that he comforts us. Psalm 46 is a great, fantastic place to go for hurting people. God comforts us. Uh, not everybody's done this, but I, I grew up hunting all my life. And I have a buddy who tells the story of uh, he's just shot a deer and he's taking it home. And it's really the first time that his two-year-old son will be old enough to kind of know what's happening. And so he's kind of gone through this litany of what am I going to say to my son about this deer that I've shot? And I'll talk about how we use the meat and the purpose of hunting and all that stuff. So he pulls into the uh, driveway and his son comes out and gets up on the back of his tailgate and looks in and he says this. He says, dear broken, daddy fix it. And he walks off. And I think this is the idea that we have of if our dad is with us, everything is going to be okay. And that's okay when we're two and three. Reality is one person in the whole universe who can make your presence, whose presence can make your life better. One person in the universe whose presence can make your life better when you walk through hard things. And it's not your dad and it's not Pastor Scott, and it's not Michael Talley, and it's not me, and it's not your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your best friend or your family or your roommate. They can be used by God to comfort us, but God alone is the one who ultimately and divinely is able to comfort us. It is God himself who brings comfort to us. He cares enough to show up. So, so what is it maybe right now in your mind that is causing you to doubt that he'll show up. There's six billion people in the world. He's not gonna show up just for me. I think I'd say very gently, you're really, really wrong. Genesis 2, 2 Samuel, John, Revelation, and the rest of scripture proclaims that God will show up when no one else will. I wanna close with a, a story. Uh, my dad was a uh, colonel in the army, and so we did lots of military history. And we went to Gettysburg frequently. I want to use a picture from Gettysburg. It's July 1st through the 3rd, 1863, climatic battle of the Civil War. 150,000 soldiers from both sides descend on this small town in southern Pennsylvania of 2,400 people. At the end of the three-day battle, there's 50,000 dead and wounded. 2,400 people left to take care of them. So, so what do the people do? What do the people in Gettysburg do? It's hot. It's humid. There are dead people and horses 
and mules and broken equipment over almost a three-mile battlefield. As far as the eye can see, there's dead and broken things. So how, how do they bury all these people? They basically start throwing an inch or two of dirt over people where they lay and they move on to the next one. And word starts getting out as the news of this battle spreads, it trickles out in the papers. Women, particularly in the north, hear about this battle and they start making a pilgrimage to Gettysburg. They come by the thousands by train or by horse or by walking. And they arrive, they're coming from Wisconsin or Ohio or Indiana, New York. And they show up and they, and they might say, hey, my, my son Samuel fought in the 15th Ohio Infantry Regiment. Do you, know, do you know where his body is? And you think about the people that are there, they're like, ma'am, look around you. What do you. What do you mean do we know where his body is? There's three miles of dead things. We don't know where your son is. We have no idea where he is. But if you realize maybe that your, his unit fought here on the first and maybe was over on this hill on the second, maybe you can go there and look around and hopefully you'll find him. One woman says, I'm not leaving until I find my husband. The diary of the chaplain states that she unearthed 16 wrong soldiers before she finds her husband and takes him back to Wisconsin. We hear that story and we want someone to show up, certainly when we're dead, but even more importantly, when we're alive. Think about those Chilean miners. Just, they weren't just hanging out when they were trapped down there. They were eagerly awaiting someone to show up in their lives to save them. They'd look heavenly every minute, praying that someone would show up, that love will somehow compel someone to show up and save them. And this is the point. It's such sweet, sweet news that all through the Bible, God shows up. He pursues us. He strengthens us. He comforts us. His love and joy over his people has no bounds, and we can trust that. His incredible love for his people compels him to show up because that is what love does. I pray that we would be men and women who wouldn't be shocked at that because we've seen it played out in the passage of Scripture, but more importantly, we'd experience it by Jesus dwelling within our hearts.